0: Good morning, Covenant College. Morning. Um, before I begin, I just want to say that I am so excited to see Susicle next week. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm bringing a bunch of middle school boys with me to come see the musical. So, so pray for me in, in advance of that. Okay. So historically, I have only spoken in chapel about sad things. I don't, I don't know, for those who are keeping track at home, I've been asked to speak about things like, how do we think about race and visual art as Christians? What about visual culture and representations of gender? I believe the very cheery title of my last talk was, my biracial body is not the answer to America's racial problems. So super fun, light stuff. But recently, an organization that serves college students who are Christians but are not at Christian colleges invited me to speak at their conference on the topic of creation, just creation. <laughs> and I said, sure. And, and then I thought, you know what, it's been a hard year and maybe you guys could also maybe handle hearing something about creation. So that's what I'm gonna do today. I'm just gonna talk to you about creation and how it's good. That's all you have to worry about. (laughs) So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is how our story begins, that from an overflow of love, the almighty triune God creates the world and everything in it. In richly poetic language, the author of Genesis describes the making of day and night, the separation of the heavens and the seas, land and plants, sun, moon, stars, and heavenly bodies, creatures of the sea and air, creatures to fill the land, and finally human beings made in the image and likeness of God. And each time God looks and he sees that what he has made is good. That goodness of creation is underscored in the final verse of Genesis 1. God saw all that he had made and it was very good indeed. So our story as humans, as beloved children of God, begins with creation, right? The arc of God's epic narrative for us, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, starts with God speaking something out of nothingness. Now, part of me genuinely wishes that I was a biologist or a physicist to give you this talk today because when my colleagues talk about this incredible microscopic world that we can't see, or they talk about just how vast and beautiful the leftovers of a supernova are, I'm like, yeah, that's creation. (laughs) It feels so big and so grand to hear them talk about it. Ironically, it almost feels a little otherworldly. But here's the thing, right? The goodness of creation isn't just in the mind-bending, mind-blowing bigness and grandness of the galaxies or the deepest oceans or the most exotic rainforests out there. The wonder of creation needs to be a reality that grounds us right here, that helps us understand more rightly who we are and the world that we inhabit. And so rather than directing your attention far away, I want to invite you to look closely at a little oil painting that's crammed full of little things. This was made by the Flemish artist Clara Peters in 1611. It's a two and a half foot wide painting made for a Dutch audience, probably in Amsterdam. And the name given to the painting is almost as long as the canvas itself. Still life with flowers, a silver gilt goblet, dried fruit, sweetmeats, breadsticks, wine, and a pewter pitcher. As artworks go, it's not particularly grand or exciting or emotionally charged. Peters depicts a cluster of relatively ordinary objects in bright light, crisp detail from a stable, central point of view. But in its mundane tangibility, this painting has also helped me recognize three important ways that creation anchors and orients us in God's story. There is goodness in what God has made. There's goodness in what we get to make. And finally, there is goodness in being made ourselves. So first, there is goodness in what God has made. If you look at the left-hand side of the painting, there's this bright bouquet of flowers in a ceramic vase. Um, There's a few stems that are also on the table below. And this loose arrangement looks pretty unstudied, kind of casual. But by using color and texture and line, Peters invites us to move slowly through this part of the painting. I'm struck, first of all, by color. There's this really beautiful lush vermilion peony lying on the stone table, and then a darker poppy nearby that's the same color. And then do you see how that same red appears in the tulips that curve elegantly to the right? And then the red daisy on the left and the tip of a compact red bud. And then the stem of that bud leads in turn to the ruffled petals of a rose. And I pick up a new color, this pale pink, and then crisp white, and kind of move my way through the painting that way. I can trace a figure eight with yellow, and as I seek out the whisper of yellow on the underside of an iris, then Clara Peters points me to these velvety purple, almost black, you can't even see them as they're being projected here, petals of tulips and columbines. There's one pale blue columbine in the bouquet on the left, and it seems a little bit out of place until you realize that it's balanced just perfectly by a nigella lying on the table. So these repeated colors create these beautiful rhythmic loops that are threaded together by arcing elegant stems. But it's really the texture in this painting that slows me down, because Peters paints every single serration on these rose leaves. She paints the clusters of pollen-tipped stamens, the fragile veins of the tulip petals, and feathery stalks of rosemary. She renders the sharp little prickles of rose thorns, the smooth expanse of columbine leaves. These aren't generic flowers. These aren't the kinds of flowers that we just doodle in the margins when we're bored. These are particular, carefully studied specimens, each one showcasing an intricate design that's meant to entice pollinators and to perpetuate the plant's life. Because the goodness of creation isn't just in its aesthetic beauty, but in its good structure. The needle-like leaves of the rosemary plant mean that it requires less energy to survive, and so it can keep going even when there's drought or cold. The columbine flower actually holds its nectar all the way back in those long spurs, so that means that pollinators with equally long tongues need to nestle up to the flower and get covered in pollen as they're feeding before they move to the next bloom. God, for his own glory and pleasure, created a world of variety and interdependence. Like a botanist peering through a magnifying glass, Peters gives attention to the absolutely glorious minutia of this little slice of creation. She revels in the goodness of these created things, and she invites us into doxology through our own close looking. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him for absurdly lush peonies and strange striking irises. Praise him for leaves that synthesize food from sunlight. Praise Him for simple five-petal buttercups and the fruity sweet fragrance of roses. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And indeed, creation orients us in wonder and praise to God. The beginning of God's story for us is literally grounded, rooted in this material world that He has made. But there's more. Because Peter's painting also reminds me that there is goodness in what we get to make as well. In Genesis 1:26, the triune God says, let us make human beings in our image according to our likeness. We, you and me and the person sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you, we are all little creators because we are made in the likeness of a creator God. And God makes that very clear. He gives Adam and Eve a mandate, right? Be fruitful and multiply, he tells them in Genesis 1:28, Fill the earth and subdue it. And this is far more than a command to harvest food and have children. The theologian and author Andy Crouch argues that in this verse, God outlines our dual responsibility as image bearers, that we are to create and we are to cultivate. We are to be generative people who steward life and resources for the flourishing of all. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, you know what he didn't make? He didn't make chopsticks. He didn't make cell phones. He didn't make oil paint. He didn't make cars. Instead, he created a world that was packed full of potentiality. (laughs) And these possibilities are what we, as little sea creators, are tasked with making. So if you look again at the other side of Peter's painting, while the flowers point to God's creation, the natural world, there's other things here that, that point us, that remind us of our human capacity to create. Right? What of culture, what of human cultivation is evident here? Well, first of all, Peters paints multiple vessels, each one made from a different material. You kind of heard that in the title, right? There's a pewter dish and pitcher on the right. There's a gold gilt goblet in the foreground. There's a wine glass in the back. The flowers are in a decorated stoneware amphora. There's nuts and dried fruit in this fluted ceramic dish. Have you guys ever really thought about how bonkers it is That human beings would heat sand and limestone and soda ash until those dusty solids melt and then that they would blow air (laughs) into a molten ball while rolling it back and forth on a rod, all just to make something to hold liquid in. That's sort of crazy right? Or what about melting rocks and pouring molten rock uh, into molds to create dishes and goblets and pitchers that can retain heat and cold? Or in perhaps the most direct echo of our own creation, how wild that we can dig clay up out of the literal earth, knead it, mold it, and turn it into vessels. In our modern world, we're kind of distanced from this, right? Like we can go to Walmart or to Amazon and we can buy I don't know, two cups for $3 or something like that. We forget that these things are made. But Peter's carefully rendered textures reminds us that these objects themselves are made things, created by humans using practices that developed over thousands of years to transform the unassuming raw material of the earth into glimmering objects that are both functional and beautiful. I hope you can pay attention to that. And then, too, human creativity is evident in the food and drink on the table. In addition to carefully dried fruits and shelled almonds, there are pretzels, and those weird white things are actually sugar candies. God did not create pretzels on the sixth day. But he did create the possibility of pretzels because he gifted humans with the skills of observation and iteration with ingenuity and persistence to recognize the potential of seeds on stalks. Likewise, and you guys know nothing about this yet, the crimson wine that seems to glow in this glass chalice It's the handiwork of humans stewarding an absolutely mysterious series of organic chemical reactions and a host of invisible microbes. So ironically, one popular interpretation of Dutch still life paintings, like this one, has been to see them as a warning against the fleeting pleasures of life. The idea that you're supposed to look at this and it's supposed to be like, bad. These things are bad. The argument goes that the Protestant Dutch chose to represent the world as it was rather than the idealistic way that Roman Catholics had. And aware of mankind's susceptibility to vanity and the pursuit of meaningless luxuries, the Dutch middle class purchased paintings that somberly warned them against such vanities. So in this interpretation, Peter's painting is, more, is less doxology and more ominous warning right, the flowers will shrivel and fade, the wine will go bad, the half-eaten pretzel will go stale, the poppy could be understood not as something beautiful, but as a symbol of death, the narcissus likewise could be understood as a symbol of vainglory. This way of interpreting Peter's painting assumes an opposition between the physical and the spiritual worlds, where the former is evil and our goal is to escape it. So we need to ask ourselves, is that what the Dutch believed? Is that what they saw when they were looking at this painting? Well, some historians have pointed to Dutch Protestants' rejection of the highly decorated worship spaces of Roman Catholicism as evidence of the Dutch suspicion of the material world. But while it's true that Dutch Protestant churches were stripped of Catholic image and ornament, Dutch middle-class homes were actually full of artwork that artwork that depicted local landscapes, scenery, scenes of everyday life, tables of cheese, of Dutch cheese specifically, fruit and flowers. Other scholars have pointed out that all of this undoubtedly was connected to the new Dutch Republic's interest in global trade, that the prosperity that it brings to this young nation. So can these paintings be both a celebration of God's goodness in creation and serve as a caution in an increasingly consumerist society? And and I think the answer is yes, that we can hold this contextual tension while also acknowledging that frankly, Clara Peters really seems to delight in the material goodness of her world, of things made both by divine decree and divine image bearing. And not only does Peter's represent the goodness of what we can make, she has also made a good thing for us to see, right? We are looking at a painting, itself a result of Peter's unfolding the potentiality of creation in her own practice. She actually wants us to know that what we're looking at is a made thing. Now, given the high level of detail and Peter's care and sort of smoothing away every brushstroke to create this highly finished glossy surface, we might initially have the sense that we are looking through a window at reality, um, that, that we are looking at something rather than looking at a made thing. It may almost seem like Peters wants to trick us that she wants us to think that we're looking at real flowers and real nuts and real pretzels when in fact we're looking at mineral pigments suspended in oil and brushed onto a smooth piece of wood. But there are several ways that Peters actually announces to us, that she emphasizes to us that we're looking at a created thing. This is going to be a little hard for you to see, but first and perhaps most obviously, she signs her work right down here, Clara P, 1611, and she puts flowers above it just to make sure that we don't miss it. It looks like her name is actually carved into the side of the table. But Peters also lets us know that this is a constructed thing through her choice and arrangement of subject matter. Remember all those beautiful flowers that we looked at at the beginning? Peters renders a bouquet that's really convincing, but it's also an impossible one because these flowers don't all bloom at the same time. There's no way that Clara Peters could have made this bouquet and sat down in front of it and painted it. Okay? Peonies, roses, irises, daffodils, narcissus, columbine, tulips, They have different blooming seasons, and so while it's clear that Peters has studied the particularities of individual flowers, carefully and precisely rendering these details, the collection of flowers themselves is a fiction, and it's a fiction that would have been easily noticed by the original viewers of this work in 17th century Amsterdam. So why do this? Peters could have concocted a bouquet of just early spring flowers, perpetuating the illusion that we're looking at merely a copy of reality. And maybe that's still what you kind of have in mind right now. Maybe you imagine that when someone makes a still life painting like this, that they set everything up nice and then they sit down and they just sort of copy what they see in front of them. And for a long time in Western art historical discourse, that was the idea. Still life painting was put at the bottom of the hierarchy of painting because it was believed that there was no invention, that that the person who was making this was merely mimicking the world rather than creating something. And yet that can't be the case if this bouquet is an impossibility, if it's an imagined thing that is summoned into existence through Peter's careful study and application. In fact, the fictional floral bouquet is an assertion of Peter's skill as an artist. She has studied nature so closely that she can weave together a believable fantasy. Now, your making might not look like Clara Peter's making, but you are all makers too. You live into that call as a little C creator when you doodle on a post-it note when you make a bowl of mac and cheese, when you sing the doxology at the end of chapel, when you journal, when you take notes in your classes, when you do a choreographed dance for TikTok or just for your roommates, whatever, you know. When you water the plants in your dorm room, even when you choose your shoes for the day, you, those are all acts of creativity and cultivation and they are part of being the goodness of being a maker. There's one more way, my favorite way, that Peters celebrates the goodness of her ability to make. And some of you might just have to take my word for this because when we zoom in on the picture and goblet, we find not just reflected light, but a reflected image. Can you see it? This is Claire Peters in her little hat. Here she is again. She's also up there, and she's over here. (laughs) She's actually in this painting six times, each a little bit different, kind of reflecting the the actual curves of these, um, these cups and these vases. They're believably distorted, right? I made this, Clara Peters announces. I made this. I made this. There's jubilance in her multiplied celebration of herself as a maker. And this brings me to my last point. Peter's painting calls us into the goodness of being made ourselves. I wanna pause and ask you, do you glory in being made? I'm gonna be honest, even after being friends with Dr. Capick for a very long time, I struggle <laughs> against the idea of being a creature because to be a creature implies limits, and those limits are imposed on me by the creator. The tulip in Clara Peters' painting can ever only be a tulip. It can't go shopping and decide to be a snail instead, right? The gilt goblet can only hold the volume of liquid that the metalworkers who made it um, intended it to hold. It cannot expand at will. But, sh- but surely I can be different, or at least that's a story I like to tell myself, right? I especially like to tell myself that story when I was in college, when I was your age. And I'm not just talking about the myth of self-creation or self-curation, I'm talking about my resistance to, um, to getting seven hours of sleep at night. My, my perpetual belief that I will not be distracted by my phone, it can stay right here, and I'm not gonna be distracted by that. I function as if finding the right workout plan is going to totally give me the body that I want, that I can say yes to everything and manage it all, that I don't need help from other people, especially my professors, and I tend to live as if I don't have limits. And then when I crash headlong into my finitude, usually when I get sick after finals, I strategize not over how to rest more, but how to have more control next time. We're working on it. At the heart of this is a resistance to being a creature. It's a resistance to being a created being. I don't want to be made by God. I want to be God. And this is where Peter's painting is perhaps most helpful to us. We marveled at how carefully and joyfully Peter's renders the scene how much attention she gives to the minute details of wrinkled figs and fluffy flowers and crisp candy. In fact, she's so delighted by this that she not only signs her name, she includes her own image in the tableau. She announces her relationship to the painting as its maker. She wants to be associated with it. Peters is a little c creator. But her regard for her flowers and nuts and pretzels and well-crafted goblets is a dim but helpful shadow of God's deliberate attention to us in this world. Peter's self-conscious acknowledgement that her painting is a constructed thing reminds us of the loving commitment that God has to all he has made. Because if Peter's has this much delight in painting a shiny cup, How much more is God's delight in us, his creation? If Peter's joy over her made thing is evident in her literal reflection of her own image, how precious, how beloved we are of God to bear his image and likeness in our very selves. We are made, we are finite creatures, and it is really, really good. In the beginning, God created. The goodness of creation orients us, the goodness of our work as makers drives us, and the goodness of being made is what tethers us. Let's pray. Triune God, we praise you for what you have made. We are grateful for the small things and the grand things, and we are grateful to be made ourselves. Would you enable us, would you empower us to live into our calling as little sea makers? Would you help us to be attentive to the goodness of the world around us? And would you let us glory in being made ourselves? Amen.